Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 80 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday afternoon, June 27th. I'm Bobby Chesney and I'm not retiring. I'm Steve Vladek and I'd just like to say, President Trump, if you're listening, I would happily move to Washington <laughs> if you were willing to nominate me to succeed Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court. Vegas odds makers, prepare the odds. There is Steve. not a number high enough. <laughs> there is not a known number high enough. All the supercomputers in the world put together could not generate a large enough number that 2-1 would reflect the odds of me being nominated by President Trump to the Supreme Court. I think you're right. So I'll put down $1 on it and I'll reap millions. Uh, <laughs> Quadrillions. <laughs> an infinite amount. I get all the, I get all the Bitcoins. So, I mean, I, I should say, I mean, we, we, had always, we had always planned to record today yep. um, to catch up on all the big Supreme Court decisions. And it turns out that I think the biggest Supreme Court decision was not actually an opinion, but rather pres- uh, Justice Kennedy's announcement earlier this afternoon that effective July 31st, he's out. Justice Kennedy didn't didn't like all this wave of stories about it being Chief Justice Roberts' court and Roberts being the the uh, the new swing vote. So he's stolen the headline at the last minute. He's a scene stealer. I mean, I, folks who have listened to our podcast enough times know how I feel about Justice Kennedy. I think that actually I don't feel like I do. Oh yeah. Well, well then let me let's, well let's, let's do run of show and ah, then because we're, we're going to want to talk Justice. about this. At want, um, so we're going to talk about Justice Kennedy and his successor and what that could mean, especially for our cup of tea. That is to say, national security, executive power type issues. And of course, some listeners are chuckling when I say let's do the run of show because they may have read the run of show earlier today. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Someone so, someone sent us a listserv email. Yeah. So uh, the, <laughs> let me explain that. Um, Going back like 12 years ago or so, back when email listservs were really sort of like the, the best. By the way, good run of show. That, that, that was, it was a good run of show. So I used to run one, and it was a one-way distribution list where I'd put out news of this development and that development. And actually, ironically, just recently, I, I sent out a note saying, you know, it's done. I'm not like abolishing the email group that was used to distribute, but I was no longer going to post to it. And then, um, you know, putting together my version of the run of show for today, I had this long email with everything we're going to talk about, a lot of my thoughts. On it, and then somehow, in the nature of these things, I send it out to the old listserv to about you know thirteen hundred people. Uh, hello, surprise! Hey, listen, at least there was nothing in there about like disagree with Steve heavily at this point. Yeah, I know. I did. Right? I did do a quick scan to see if it was like one of these classic horrifically. Uh, I just say of all of the of all of the accidental reply all type scenarios yeah. I've been involved in in my career, this was incredibly mellow. There, there was the time to, just to make you feel better. You might yeah. recall not so long ago when I accidentally invited our whole faculty to a as yet not scheduled faculty meeting. Oh, yeah, that was awesome. That yeah. was awesome. That caused some good confusion. Indeed. Well, happily, this turned out to just be some good guerrilla marketing. If you're a new listener to the show, right. because you're, you you've already left. Welcome aboard. All okay. right, so, so just to get to the back to the run of show, because Bobby tried to run me off of it. Um, obviously, I think the bulk of our conversation today is going to be about the Supreme Court, not just the uh, impending departure of Justice Kennedy, but also um, three pretty big decisions. Well, two big decisions and one soul-crushing decision. Um, actually, two pretty big decisions and two soul-crushing decisions. It's an interesting Venn diagram. Um, Carpenter versus the United States, the big cell site location information decision, uh, the travel ban. And, you know, Bobby, they threw everybody for a loop when they handed down, quote, Ortiz, unquote. So, <laughs> where, where did Dalmazi go? Right. The, the artist formerly known as Dalmazi. So, yes. so we're, we're going to probably spend most of the time talking about those three things. We're going to do yes. a quick roundup of some national security prosecution, prosecution developments, um, talk maybe briefly 
briefly about an interesting Fourth Circuit decision from last week in the burn pit litigation brought by service members against private military contractors. And then I think if there's time at the end, Bob, you talk a bit about sort of border and cyber and like militarization issues, both with regard to sending jabs to the border, the FY 2019 NDAA, etc. But most importantly, if you make it all the way to the end, you will not only hear me gloat about Germany's early departure from the World Cup, but you will hear us talk about our reactions to Solo colon a Star Wars story. So, spoiler alert, we will, we will not spoil anything about Solo if you haven't seen it but want to until we get to the frivolity at the end. But stay tuned then if you've seen it and or want to hear what we think about it. <laughs> and if you saw my email earlier, you already know what I think. I was going to say, I, that, that's the one spoiler. All right, so um, why don't we dive in with Justice Kennedy? So just for, for the listeners among us who are not super Supreme Court nerds, so Anthony Kennedy was appointed by President Reagan. Um, he was nominated in 1987, confirmed in 1988. Uh, since Justice O'Connor retired, um, effective January 2006, Bobby Kennedy has really been the swing vote between two pretty well-organized for-justice blocks, especially in those cases that tend to fall along relatively predictable partisan ideological lines. So he's, he's often depicted as amongst the conservative justices, but as is often the case, these labels are, are too sweeping. Although uh, not this term. Well, Kennedy is, <laughs> is a very libertarian justice on certain issues. Yeah, uh, I mean— He clearly is a free speech hawk. He's, he's very much— Sometimes. —a central justice, if not the central justice, for, uh, for uh, gay rights issues. Certainly true. Um, and so he has a libertarian dimension that complicates narratives about the government always wins when Kennedy's— So, you know. so, so we're, we're back to what I promised, which is to share my thoughts about Justice Kennedy. So yes. Justice Kennedy, I, 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 if, you could, if I could differentiate between— Steve Vladek, the person, and Steve Vladek, the con law professor. Okay. I have two very different reactions to Justice Kennedy. All right. Steve Vladek, the person, finds Justice Kennedy frustrating, um, but, you know, is often in agreement with him. Right. So, for example, I have, you know, I admire and have deep respect for his leading the charge, as you say, on gay rights. Um, you know, he cast a pretty important vote um, in, in both Casey in 1992 and abortion and Whole Woman's Health two years ago. Um, so, you know, there are issues where I find myself much happier with Justice Kennedy, for example, as the swing vote than, say, a world in which someone like Chief Justice Roberts is the swing vote, which may be where we're heading. Steve, the con law professor, cannot stand Justice Kennedy because he is impossible to teach. He has very little sort of core doctrinal foundations that he sticks to and hews to in case after case. And his opinions are full of lovely, quotable, flowery <laughs> rhetoric. Sweeping. Right. That actually doesn't hold anything. So you find you know, personal autonomy autonomy and dignity as sort of amorphous concepts that don't have enough categorical content. I mean, so here's what happens. I teach a case like Lawrence versus Texas, where Justice Kennedy struck down, you know, anti-sodomy laws on the grounds that they were an interference in both the dignity of homosexuals and, you know, the liberty of consenting adults. And my students ask me, so does Lawrence articulate a fundamental right? And I say, no. Did Lawrence recognize that uh, gays and lesbians are members of a protected group entitled to heightened scrutiny under the Supreme Court's equal protection jurisprudence? No. Now, what, so what did it hold? What, but so how much of that is an objection to, to craftsmanship, if you will, doctrinal craftsmanship, versus objection to the 
uh, to him not being as libertarian or liberal as you would like him to be. No, no. So, so again, I mean, co- the contrast between him and Justice O'Connor, I think, is striking, right? So Justice O'Connor was not that far to his left. I mean, I think they would often flip-flop in some cases. But you always knew where she was. Um, right, Justice O'Connor, if she wanted to decide a case narrowly, you got narrow language. Hamdi is a great example. Mm-hmm. Her plurality opinion in Hamdi is a textbook example of not sort of, you know, losing a very specific holding in flowery rhetoric about the Magna Carta. But but couldn't you lodge a – like, so let's – this critique you just offered for Kennedy for being – too imprecise and, and too unpredictable in terms of the doctrinal yeah. aspects of the holdings. Isn't that the classic complaint about uh, O'Connor's piece of Casey and the undue burden test? So, listen, there are individual opinions where you and I, if we sat here long enough, yeah. could find at least one opinion for every justice we've ever thought about that doesn't <laughs> mesh with their broader methodological commitments. My frustration with Kennedy is this wasn't one of that all of his, like, Boumediens like this, Lawrence is yeah, like this, I guess so. Obergefell is I, I like confess, this. I confess I've often lumped him and O'Connor Connor together, and in class, I often talk about them as two justices who are conspicuously not, in contrast to say a Rehnquist, who could be mm-hmm. real. He was clearly cared a lot about trying to articulate precise doctrine, yep. whatever one thought of it. Yep. Um, he took the doctrine really seriously. Yep. Plenty of justices don't, and in I think you and I both at least sometimes teach con law in a chronological method. Yep. And one of the things that comes out from doing that is you see the rise over time, and especially arguably peaking in the late 20th century in in, in the Rehnquist court of the majority opinions or the, the court's opinions being really clear and precise in spelling out doctrinal details. And it's an interesting question that I like to get my students to grapple with, which is, you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's yep. easy. It's easier to teach and it's easier to learn when there's a clear five-step framework, three-step framework. But does it create a false impression of clarity and predictability that's not really there? Maybe. And so, I mean, this is not to sort of condemn his jurisprudence. It's just to say that it's hard to teach. But Indeed. I, I, I agree with you there. But, but I do want to I do want to disagree with you a little bit about lumping Kennedy and O'Connor together. Okay. Because even though they often ended up in or very near to the same place, they got there through very different paths. I mean, and, you know, Lawrence is a great example of this. In Lawrence versus Texas, O'Connor writes this very narrow opinion that says the problem here is very straightforward. The Texas law only bans same-sex sodomy. It does not ban heterosexual sodomy. It therefore runs afoul of the animus principle that we articulated in Romer versus ba- in Evans. I'm done. Right versus Kennedy, who goes out of his way to say, no, 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 that's not nearly enough because we have to overrule Bowers versus Hardwick, even though he overrules Bowers without actually telling you what he's left in its place. And that, of course, provoked you know, t- a decade of confusing litigation that t- you know, only until Justice Kennedy finally said, all right, I'm done, gay marriage. <laughs> You know. So I, I view that differently. I think that's a bug or a feature situation where you're describing it as a bug, but arguably it, there was strategic ambiguity that kept kept the course on pace with the changing political mores and cultural mores that enabled this to stick as well as it has. Well, listen, Kennedy was good at nothing. If he was good at nothing, if it wasn't strategic ambiguity, we can agree on that. All right. So. Um, I, I think I should also stress just because I think this is probably obvious to both of us, but maybe not to all of our listeners. This is a potentially um, stunningly important moment, right, for the court. I mean, I can't think of a judicial confirmation, certainly in our professional careers and perhaps even in our lifetime, where the balance of the court hangs so obviously up for grabs. And what I mean by that is, there is, as this term I think shows, there is a very solid for-justice conservative camp, right? There is a probably almost a solid for-justice progressive camp. 
And so whoever the new justice is, unlike Justice Gorsuch, who was replacing Justice Scalia, right? Right. The new justice is right. going to move, in, in, unless it is a clone of Justice Kennedy, and I don't think that person exists, right? I think there's no question that especially someone who this president nominates and is confirmed by this Senate is going to move the court pretty decisively to the right. I don't think it's as clear. I think that's most likely, but I don't think it's locked in as much as I think you think it is. So I think that there's, let's, let's talk about how this might look ideologically yeah. against the backdrop of what Trump has done with judicial appointments so far. Um, He's been so conciliatory. That's that's sarcasm. It, 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 yeah, well, it's tempting to say, like, what, is he supposed to nominate people that he ideologically disagrees with? I'm no. not surprised he puts forth. Here, here's the point I want to make. He has become, it's been widely claimed that what he's largely done with some really glaring exceptions that often have been shot down. Yes. He has largely Let deferred the to society. the kind of classic, yep. you know, people say, like, he's deferred to the federal society, which is a way of saying that the uh, this sort of the dominant slice of organized conservative elite legal practice yep. Is getting the same nominations they would have gotten with uh, a sort of a median Republican presidential uh, president, and and a Senate majority and no filibuster. Right. So I mean, uh, that's a relevant yeah. condition as well. No, indeed. And and this introduces a timing question yes. about when. I don't. By the way, let's jump right to that really important point. Do you think there's any chance something gets done before November? Yes. I think there's a hundred percent. I think there's a hundred. I think there's a. I think. And did Kennedy retire now to make that possible? I think there's a. I think Mitch McConnell. Part of why he called an August session of the Senate was in case this happened. I think there is a one hundred point zero percent. Let me tell you. And without a filibuster, there's nothing to be done about that. There are exactly two things that could stop this. All right. Thing number one is Mueller comes back with indictments. Right, and that, <laughs> everybody gets all the oxygens consumed. No, and, no, and some Senate Republicans say maybe now is not the right moment. Yeah, I don't think that would happen. But wait, uh, number two is President Trump was forward a nominee so far to the right that there are at least a couple they of peel moderate off. Senate Republicans right. who peel okay, off. Okay, so that's what I'm getting at. That's so, the whole con- the whole ball game here. Everything at this point rises and falls on Susan Collins, Jeff Flake, John McCain, and Bob Corker. Exactly. Okay, so that's exactly where I wanted to go. So if you're from the point of view of the collection of people that will have some input with Trump and Trump himself in deciding who comes forward next, there's a game to be played here in terms of whether there are any outer boundaries. I think you and I disagree about what how far the outer boundary is, but I think we both agree that there is one. You just gave that example. But right, Janine Pirro is not going to get confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States. That would be something. But I think you're right about that. And so the question is, God, I hope I'm right about what, that. What is too far? Now we've had at the lower dis- the district court nominee level, we've had some really comical and, and you know awful nominees right. that got bounced because they just didn't seem qualified. Right. Um, but I'm not sure anyone who is currently a sitting federal judge like no matter yeah, their, could, no matter their ideology, that. Right. right, would fall on the wrong side. So so let's assume he's going to draw from sitting judges right. of whatever Federal level. State. Yeah, exactly. There are there's a you know a pretty well rehearsed set of nominee possibilities. It's I think it's all but certain it's going to come from somewhere within that band. And the only interesting question is is he going to go for some sitting judge who's a bit of an outlier mm-hmm. who's is it going to be someone who, for for Trump's personal reasons, he thinks will be very deferential to the executive branch, including unilateral executive actions? Um, he hasn't shown right. an inclination to use judicial appointments that way. Right. And I think pushing that direction will move the needle for where you might lose the remaining moderate Republicans. So, so I think you're – the upshot is I think you're going to get a pretty traditional – Republican nominee. I think that's probably right. The one difference between this, well, there are two differences, I think, between this time around and the Gorsuch nomination, right? Difference number one is 
I don't think any everyone understood with Gorsuch that it was Scalia's seat, right? right sure. And that and that no, and that almost nobody would have moved the court further to the right. Um, right, compared to Justice Scalia. Now, that's putting aside the Merrick Garland, Michigas, but we'll put that aside for the moment. Um, thing two, unlike what was true at the time of the Gorsuch nomination, Trump now, ha- now has his own bench of folks he has either nominated or elevated mm-hmm. within the federal courts. And so in addition to someone like our friend Brett Kavanaugh, who I think has long been for obvious reasons on any mm-hmm. Republican shortlist, I would add people like um, Amul Thapar, um, who's a Sixth Circuit judge in Kentucky, who was a district judge, who was very close to Senator McConnell. And so, of course, ah. McConnell would have a vested interest in making sure that got through. There's a legacy. There's also this whole owning the libs by nominating the first, you know, um, Asian American, right, South or at least South Asian American to the Supreme Court. I mean, I think that would be something President Trump might might enjoy. Um, she hasn't been on the court that long, but someone like Amy Coney Barrett in the Seventh Circuit. I mean, I just, you know, it's it seems to me that Trump is going to want one of his own people this time around. That that would make sense, and I been and I don't think people should assume that someone who was previously nominated by him in any way should should be assumed to be someone who's therefore just going to go along with his agenda on everything. No, he hasn't used judicial appointments. Right. In a way that closely tracks his agenda not, not and policy his, areas. No, not his agenda. Exactly. I do, I do think it will be someone who is deeply committed to the federal society's agenda, right? And so, and and and, and because that's yeah. that's where the, the names are coming. I, from. I would quibble with the description of it being the federal society's agenda, but I know what you mean. I know what you mean. In other words, here's a shocker: we're going to predict that the nominee will reflect conservative judicial philosophy. But more so and than, but this is this is the thing I think is is just if if you take nothing else away from this podcast, I think there. There is virtually zero chance that by, you know, the beginning of the Supreme Court term in October, the Supreme Court doesn't have a brand new justice who is significantly to the right on at least some issues of Justice Kennedy and who therefore places Chief Justice Roberts in the middle yeah. of the nine Where justices. he was already moving, according to a lot of observations well, or, of this year. So, I mean, this is... The, not, the, not he's moving, but that was kind of the position he was beginning to occupy. At least because of where Kennedy was. I mean, one yeah. of the really interesting things about this term with Kennedy is this was the first time since he became the swing vote that there wasn't a single 5-4 case where he joined the lefties, right? Of yeah. the 19 5-4 cases, 14 were conservative 5-4 right. majorities. Um Four were, uh, sorry, three of so, the three were sort of lefties, but two were with the chief and one was with Gorsuch. This kind of runs counter to the theory. It's possible that actually Kennedy himself was no longer Kennedy, that, if this theory is right, that he had already moved a little so bit. Rick Hossin, I'm not sure that's right. But. No, Rick Hassan, I think, has a different view. Our, our friend Rick Hassan from UC Irvine has suggested that, you know, it's not that Kennedy moved to the right. It's that he was checking out. It's that, like, he was signaling. He's no fighting. Yeah. He was just signaling that he was done. Um, and that he had, yeah. you know, I mean, they punt on gerrymandering, yeah. right? They yeah. punt on all the things he cared about. The, he writes a very narrow opinion in Masterpiece Cake Shop. Uh, but he but he does write himself this little one and a half page well, Oh, we're going to get to his, we're going to get to his soliloquy, his, his be best soliloquy in, in, I take in, it, in I take it you're not a fan. I don't know. Um, okay, so we should probably wait, quickly wait. move yes, on. Yes, I am not him. a fan of, of Justice Kennedy, who had the swing vote in the case, saying, dear Mr. President, you should act better. Yes, mm. I am not a fan of that. No, All right, we'll talk. We'll talk about that because we're going to talk about that case as a standalone yes. matter. But should we talk briefly about sort of real briefly? Yeah, how this is going to move. So on the issue, we're not going to talk about abortion, even though I think Roe is probably now dead. Right? We're not going to talk about other sort of hot button social issues. Of course, people thought that about Kennedy himself, right? and indeed thought or assumed that that'd be true about O'Connor. And you and never quite know. No, I feel pretty good about this. Um, <laughs> you know, hey, I'm on the record, right? There you I'm, go. I'm talking into a microphone. Um, on our stuff, right? I mean, the the cases where Kennedy made a huge difference that jump right to mind are 
Hamdan, right, where he is mm-hmm. the fifth vote in a 5-3 majority. Mm-hmm. Boumediene, Boumediene is, right, is a big one. He writes for the 5-4 majority, mm-hmm. right? But for Kennedy, you know, maybe there's no habeas at Guantanamo. And unlike, to take Roe v. Wade, unlike Roe v. Wade, these aren't ne- those holdings are not necessarily the, of the sort that are coming back up, where you have this bubbling up of cases that present those same issues again, this movement to challenge them. I don't, I don't necessarily see him being replaced by someone who might go a different way if the original case was presented. I don't think the occasion really arises for those cases. I don't. I mean, who knows, right? Because who knows what the next iteration will be? I mean, imagine if a case comes back to the Supreme Court about extending Boumediene, or imagine if no, but that's about- but that already had come up, and, and Kennedy himself didn't. You know, they right. didn't take cert when they had the chance for Kennedy Afghanistan. Kennedy didn't, right? Because maybe the no one was sure where he was. But if you know that you've got five votes to limit Boumediene, yeah. maybe the. I'm just saying. Yeah. I actually think. I, I mean, this is. I think you and I disagree here, but I actually think that one of the quietly important areas that's going to get neglected by public conversations because they'll be focused on the social hot button issues. Sure. Where Kennedy actually made a pretty big difference was ensuring a role for the courts in terrorism cases. I think he was only interested up to a point. I think right. the track record proves that he, he had done what he wanted to do in that area. And I don't see that stuff. I don't see those markers being removed. So imagine, but I don't, ima- yeah. imagine, I mean, we talked last week about the, the pending cases involving whether undocumented immigrants are protected by the suspension clause. Right, which bit, which raises a question about Boumediene's application, Bobby, not to outward new facts, but to mm-hmm. inward new facts. You know, I could see a, a, a new five-four majority saying, "Yeah, Boumediene was unique to the context of." Could be, certainly could be. Right. This gets to the point I was trying to make earlier, though, that the the spectrum of conservative judicial appointees who are likely includes elements of libertarianism, where it's hard to say. You know, yeah. Scalia himself. Uh, was for citizens, was for citizens, but not for non-citizens. But but territory may have mattered in a way that no, this may, may have mattered. So for so if we do get a more libertarian justice, right, and someone in more of a Scalia-ish mold yeah. than Kennedy, then I think that that might produce awkward results where, in some respects, citizens are better protected, and in lots of respects, non-citizens are worse protected. I certainly will agree that what we're not likely to see is a justice who's going to be particularly interested in extending constitutional rights into new domains, right. or what arguably are new domains, but man, my for cert, non-citizens. My cert petition in Hernandez versus Mesa is looking hot right now. <laughs> it's ex parte communication, come on. Who am I ex parte communicating with? All the justices listening to this. Ah, ah yes, them. them. All right, so, so I'll say, I mean, stay tuned. But yeah. I mean, you know, we've been through. I mean, so I started teaching in two thousand and five, right? So I've been so I've been through what the Ch- Roberts, Alito, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Gorsuch. I guess Garland-ish, right? So five, <laughs> you know, five open seats. This one's going to be bigger this is the and bigger, hotter this than is, yeah. This no, is this they're is all huge. big, but this is huge. I mean, huge. Okay, um, Ele- elections matter, which is part of why it's so important that the Supreme Court has been making it harder for Democrats to win them. I see. So, <laughs> speaking of the court, it's not only changing personnel, but it's actually issuing long-awaited decisions. It's done. So, we're going to talk uh, in, in some depth about Carpenter and travel ban. Let's start with Carpenter. But the by the long, way, the, yeah. the best part of today, though, was the chief at the end of the, the last opinion announcement says, he announced the retirement of some staff and said, all right, we're done. And so, everyone went back and wrote their hot take. Kennedy's not retiring. And then, like, two hours later, he's like, bye, everybody. That is really interesting. Well, you know, it, it definitely made for a great, exciting late afternoon uh, Twitter boom. It's not exciting. It's horrifying. Well, for some people, it's horrifying. For some people, it's neutral. And for some people, it's good news. So it's, uh, you know, the thing about Kennedy is that his he doesn't have one ideological direction That's that right. all he always points in. So there's I would de- love to it, know. it depends a lot on what one's favorite issues are. I would love to know if there's anyone out there who is not a Kennedy clerk 
who actually agrees with a majority of his with a majority with a with a yeah. with a let's say with more than two thirds who basically is like that guy's profile. right all the time yeah because I feel like um, I feel like most people are like he's right more he's right more than never but like he's not right all the time so I, I it would depend on I'd really have to look at that because right? I agree with a lot of what he's done mm. and in, and not in ways that track Bobby, political Bob, party you Bobby, know, platforms you might be the that. one I might be the one which is another way of saying that Kennedy in the the net effect of his rulings arguably places him sort of in the uh, centrist moderate camp where I like to find myself. So so let's start with Carpenter. So Kennedy dissented in Carpenter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which goes to this theory that he isn't always so libertarian. Um, and Roberts sometimes is. And so this yeah. case, Carpenter joins, uh, you know, Sibelius as this sort of like, ooh, the chief with the more liberal justices. So Carpenter was, of course, this long-awaited decision about whether or not the court was going to carve out an exception to the third-party doctrine in the case of at least some forms of the government getting cell site location information. Cell site location information in a particular setting where it's historical, where it's it's a record of where, based on cell tower connections to your phone when you try to place or receive calls, um, where you were. And, and under current technology, and this is kind of an interesting aspect of the opinion, under current technology, that's not a super precise latitude and longitude. This is, uh, I think the record indicates, it's between half a mile and two miles precision. And so it's sort of an episodic picture of where you are during the day as you make and receive calls, um, at sort of as one person, I think Oren Kerr put it in his super useful lawfare post, um, it's sort of like, it shows what neighborhoods you're in. Uh, but that's not quite the way the majority opinion actually describes the technology. The opinion, very critically, is framed with reference not to where the technology is now, but to where it seems soon and inevitably, as the majority puts it, to be going, in which that uh, location information, the record historically that the phone company has, is really precise and more comprehensive. And so uh, the analogy is given by the majority that it's the equivalent of wearing an ankle monitor in some private company having a permanent record, or at least a very long-lasting record, of everywhere you went. Now, Steve, I'm curious whether you think that uh, it's fair game to base the outcome now based on that projection, which I'm sure eventually will be true. We don't know when or precisely how. Uh, is it right to analyze this presently presented fact pattern in light of what this technology is going to evolve into? So I think it's an interesting question about sort of a moving wall, right? I mean, we certainly jumped the gun or jumped the shark or jumped something <laughs> on a pure Fourth Amendment originalism here, um, yeah. right? But that's been true of the Supreme Court's doctrine at least since Katz, uh, right? And the, and the elucidation of the reasonable expectation of privacy standard. So, you know, I, I have to say, I am deeply sympathetic to the Chief Justice's majority opinion here, but that's because I'm deeply sympathetic to the idea that the third party doctrine is a very analog yeah. conception of privacy. I mean, I assume you have you have to like the general, maybe we should say, what is the general major takeaway? The yes. general major takeaway is that whereas there's a world you could live in, and for a time we arguably were living in, in which the third-party doctrine, which holds that you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in data information that you voluntarily put into the hands of a third party, like your bank, like the phone company, like all the service industries of a million different kinds that, that have pieces of our data lives. Um, the idea could be that there's never reasonable expectation of privacy in that information, full stop. You've waived it, in effect, by, by voluntarily using these services. Then there's another world in which we say, well, it's a spectrum in those cases. And at one end, 
there's no reasonable expectation of privacy. But as you ramp up either the pervasiveness or the significance or the voluntariness or some combination of those variables about how and what got put into the hands of the third party, at a certain point, actually, you do, after all, get a reasonable expectation of privacy. And and I think it's really important to note that we actually already had a major inroad years ago, at least at the circuit level, but it seems to be sort of the, the generally received opinion that content of communications, like an email, content that's in the hands of a third party doesn't you know, become fair game. You don't lose all your reasonable expectation of privacy just because it's in the third party's hands, just because Google has your email. So we'd already had a little bit of an inroad there. But can I, can I say, but I think the piece that was missing that I think a lot of folks didn't appreciate until around the time of the Snowden disclosures was the difference at the time the third party doctrine was promulgated, which was, you know, before I was born and you were, you know, in elementary school, <laughs> yes, um, yes, right? Um, where with the ability of the government to not just obtain this data, but to cross reference it, right? And so it's not just that the government could obtain phone records, say, from your phone company, it's that they could then take those phone records, put them into a computer and have the computer cross reference those against, say, credit card charges, right? Or other financial, or, you know, it was the idea of cross, I mean, not can to I, quote Ghostbusters. A friendly, friendly, okay, I want to hear this. Crossing the streams, Cro- right? Ooh, don't cross the streams. Can I get a friendly amendment yeah. to that? It, it's, because cross-referencing, including some degree of technology-assisted cross-referencing, I think would have existed in the 70s. when, But Smith, not to this degree. It, it, so that's what I want to say. It's digitization yeah. and the power of co- the computing power, both in terms of what's collected by third parties yeah. and the way we live our, wi- our lives in data-significant ways, creating data uh, breadcrumbs and the way they get collected, and then the ability to amass it all in bulk. And over time, it's it's a difference in quantity and scale that, you know, sort of the Napoleonic idea. It's got a quality all its own. Yep. So well, I guess what I'm saying is we had, it's not that it was always a bright line rule. Content versus non-content information was already an inroad. Yep. But now we're talking about metadata or non-content information that under a strict bright line-ish approach would have been fair game without any warrant requirement or no reasonable expectation of privacy. And now the rules change. So the upshot of Carpenter, we finally get around to saying, is <laughs> you do have to get a warrant to go get it if well, – and, and there's, a, there's a floor identified, which may or may not be the real bottom. It is a scenario where, in this case, they were getting seven days or more worth of historic cell site but information. So say, anything we'll, above that for cell site is now you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Can I make a friendly amendment? Yes. Right. So, so in my nerdy CNN, make sure we don't screw up everything capacity, I was yelling at everyone, don't say they need a warrant. Right, right. It's, it's usually the, need a warrant. Right, unless an, unless an exception, exception applies. Another exception warrant clause applies. And we're going to come to that because no, no, that's, that's where it's really in I, our bailiwick. But, but it's worth, I mean, I, I, this is a point that I think is, is often skipped over or, or, or elided, right, which is the the, trig, the third-party doctrine says there's no expectation of privacy, therefore the warrant clause is wholly inapplicable, right, to that kind of right. government Because there was data. no search. Right. What, what Carpenter holds, much like what Jones held with regard to GPS tracking, right, is not that you have to get a warrant. It's that it is a search for Fourth Amendment purposes, thereby triggering the warrant clause. Completely true. Right? And, and by extension, triggering also the potential relevance of any number of exceptions to the warrant requirement. For example, action in circumstances, right? For example, I don't know, maybe some kind of national security. Right. So let's talk about there, yeah. there's We've laid out the, the basics. The two things that are interesting for us to talk about are, A, what other investigative tools, law enforcement investigative tools or intelligence investigative tools, may or may not be vulnerable in light of this? And then in, entirely apart from that, is it possible that this will then precipitate a situation in which the Supreme Court might finally weigh in on a question that's been around for a long time but relatively quiet in recent decades? 
is there perhaps an exception to the warrant requirement, regardless of the type of search? Is there an exception for foreign intelligence uh, only right. investigative methods? Right. So let's let's talk first about um, which, by the way, yeah. a, a Kennedy successor, I think, would certainly say yes. Kennedy that. That there you, is an exception for foreign intelligence surveillance. You think Kennedy, no matter, you think they're not going to nominate someone unless it's some, you think it'll be bound to be somebody who would. Yes. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a litmus test. I'm just saying, like, I'd be very surprised. Like, Really? I, yes. I, I'm surprised you, you're so confident of that. Okay. Um, well. I, I think it's, you know, you think about, would Scalia have said yes to that, Kennedy yes. himself? You yes. think so? Yes. I don't know. I mean, yes. the, the the guy who's the the Crawford author. Yeah, but, you know. I, no, mean, I guess he, Scalia was actually known for his, his views about FISA and other things. But I don't think it's at all obvious in an environment in which libertarianism is an important part of the mix for conservatives that they're going to nominate someone who would, at this point in in 2018 and onward, uh, come back to something the Supreme Court has never actually been willing to say before. I don't know. I mean, it's, I would just put that on the list of interesting things that the Kennedy successor might hold us absolutely. The vote on. Okay, well, let's talk about this because this is the more pertinent right. thing for us to weigh That's in right. on. Other people. FISA. Well, so before there was FISA, and <laughs> when there wasn't a dedicated foreign intelligence uh, judicial order system for electronic surveillance and other things where people with Fourth Amendment rights might be the objects of a non-criminal foreign intelligence investigation, uh, we had many decades of collection activities that were not undertaken pursuant to warrants, and a lot of basically lower court litigation that bubbled up over time, especially right up into the teeth of the birth of FISA, about whether you actually have a, just a categorical exemption from having to get a warrant. You, you still have to be reasonable because it's still a search, but you don't have to get a warrant. And um, the most prominent case for this, I think you would agree, is the Fourth Circuit's decision uh, involving David Trung. David Trung. Yep. Trung was spying for the North Vietnamese. And when the government initially tapped his phones, they did it without a warrant because it was a counterintelligence investigation, a foreign intelligence investigation. And then, and then at a certain point, they switched over to planning for his prosecution. And then at trial, wanted to put in all the evidence of all the wiretaps. And Trung's lawyers argued that uh, the wiretapping phase without the warrant was unconstitutional, violated the Fourth Amendment. There, there was little doubt that this was a search. They were wiretapping the content of his phone calls. Um, the government's position, which prevailed, was that there is a foreign intelligence uh, limitation on the warrant requirement. And so as a first order matter, there was no necessary obligation to get the warrant. The problem where the government then lost was that Eventually, it did become a prosecution, and so the Trunk Court is most well-known, not so much for the part where it said there is a foreign intelligence exception, but in how they handled the situation in which there's both a foreign intelligence and a criminal investigative interest floating around at or near the same time, that's the origin of the famous or infamous primary purpose test. The mm -hmm. Trunk Court said the way you reconcile this is once the primary purpose of the investigation flips from foreign intelligence to criminal prosecution, you have to go get that warrant. If you keep listening to the phone calls without the warrant, it's going to be suppressed from that point on. Now, you, you kind of don't really, for the most part, non-specialists don't hear about this debate again because at the exact same time, indeed, before the Fourth Circuit finally issued its opinion, Congress introduces FISA and the whole model shifts into getting FISA court orders anyways if you're targeting a U.S. person inside the United States. So the issue was really big before FISA and hadn't gotten to the Supreme Court. And then it kind of goes under the surface thanks to FISA. Right. Uh, do you think that we're any closer in light of Carpenter 
to actually having an answer to this? Not so. Here's, I mean, the thing is, Title One of FISA, right, basically moots the question because it, you can duck as many courts have right. the question by simply holding that a FISA warrant is, for Fourth Amendment purposes, yeah. a warrant. Yeah, you don't have to reach the exception. Right. The question is, the question only arises in the context of the other parts of FISA. For example, right, the um, business records, business records, or you know, the 702 authority, right, to sort of do um, prism and upstream. Um, if you ever got to a pure constitutional challenge to upstream collection against U.S. persons, um, right, even incidental collection, because the statute doesn't actually allow targeting of U.S. persons, right. um, I think you would have to at least nod right, and try to sort out the scope of the exception. And we saw a little bit of that from the FISA Court of Review in the predecessor to 702, mm-hmm. the Protect America Act, in the in directives case in 2008. So, you know, I think Carpenter... In one sense, the chief is very careful to say, I'm not saying anything about national security cases. Yeah, he actually has a line, which, by the way, that carries on the Keith case tradition and the Katz case decision. Um, And so so no lower court's going to be bound by Carpenter to sort of reassess. No, quite the contrary. In fact, they should not claim that Carpenter tells you one way or the other anything about foreign intelligence No, the big question is whether Carpenter is a harbinger of the demise of the third-party doctrine more generally. Before we go there, though, I want want to stay focused on (laughs) this. I completely agree that, that Carpenter says zero about the foreign yeah. intelligence exception and says don't read anything in about foreign intelligence investigations. But, just, but Riley, Riley, right, said was said, we're only talking about the search engine to arrest doctrine. Don't read anything into this about other things. No, but true. No, but, but Riley not necessarily implied a lot of things, as did Jones, as yeah. does Carpenter. But right. none of these cases were foreign intelligence cases. True. There's no way to infer anything true. here. True. So but the point I want to make is that you're, you're right, absolutely, that Title I FISA, and I would actually say 702 as well, they're, they're not like likely to produce situations in which you're going to get to the foreign intelligence exception question because some kind of court involvement, maybe it's not good enough in 702, maybe it is, but some kind of court involvement's already there. What's interesting about Carpenter is it introduces the idea that for non-content collection, a warrant also is required. And so there, you then would ask, all right, so when business records are being collected based on a a lower than Title I type of standard, a relevance type test, then is it is it going to be the case that in some presumably upcoming FISA court proceeding, there's a debate about, well, do, do you actually have a warrant problem here? Right. And at that point, does it go away because we are definitely talking about foreign intelligence collection? I would say it's the answer to that is already predetermined by the opinion, by NRA directives and NRA sealed case and other the, the Fisker, the Court of Review for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, has explicitly said, first of all, primary purpose test was a mistake. You can have both at the same time. Second of all, there is a foreign intelligence exception. So Fisk- Although it hasn't tied those together. Uh, right, the primary purpose holding was about the statute, right? So that was in sealed case with regard to Patriot. True. Yeah, yeah. No, but, but the key thing is they've definitely said for – so law of the circuit for the FISC no, right. That's is the already decided, so, so the but question, not for any regular so the, district so, judge. Right, so the question is are you going to get a criminal case, right, where there's an 1806 suppression motion exactly. that raises That's the question? That's what I'm going to. Or, right, because this is one of the things that I think folks forget about the USA Freedom Act is it included a procedure for taking more cases from Fisker – to the Supreme Court. And, and so, so it could go up from there. And so then there's a question of whether even though it's, quote, circuit, unquote, precedent within the but FISC system. But would it system, go all the way up? You know, in an appropriate case. Now, if I'm the Supreme Court, I'm in no hurry, especially right. until there's new justice, hmm. um, to take the issue. But, you know, if you look at the 1806 decisions, right, thus far, they've been very careful to actually avoid many of the big questions. The the um, the Tenth Circuit one, I'm trying to remember the name of it, um, uh, Mudorov. Um, right, um, the Mudorov case in the Tenth Circuit, right, where they really duck the the harder constitutional questions. 
it may be a matter of time, Bobby, depending upon how we're using FISA-related intelligence you know, going forward. So, uh, and we're going to come back to Mitrov in a minute, actually, in our roundup. But, ah. um, yeah, we got a little development, finally, in that case. So, the, the takeaway is that you could, in theory, sometime in the years ahead, have a FISA business records or some other FISA metadata type case that is yep. bulk in a way that implicates Carpenter, and therefore, within the FISA process, implicates this issue that, unless it gets to the Supreme Court, has been decided in the government's favor that there is a foreign intelligence exception, and it governs. So yep. Carpenter's not an obstacle there unless it gets to the Supreme Court. And then, more interestingly, if it then shows up as evidence the government wants to introduce in a criminal prosecution. Now, I said a moment ago, it's an open question. Not in the Fourth Circuit, where Trung is still law of the land. So the government actually, in the Fourth Circuit, including Eastern District of Virginia, the law of the land is there's a foreign intelligence exception, but there's also a primary purpose test. Yeah, although I do think, I mean, I do, so, so let me say two quick things, right? First is, I think there is a meaningful distinction between foreign intelligence plus primary purpose and foreign intelligence plus significant purpose, right? And actually, you know, if I had my druthers, I would actually, I think Trong's right and directives is wrong. Yeah, um, so, so then that could be the outcome if and when we ever get a case. Right. Now, I don't know how often... Uh, and I assume it's pretty rare, the government pursues a criminal prosecution and tries to introduce well, FISA-derived business records. Well, we also know that, I mean, for a while, the government wasn't necessarily properly informing, right, uh, uh, defendants that they were using such records, but um, such evidence. But then I, was saying, I, don't know, I don't think the Fourth Circuit would feel bound by Trong. I mean, I think Carpenter would give them enough of a justification at least to go to think carefully about whether Trong still well, I still certainly governs. think they would feel free to reconsider yeah. it to nineteen uh, what eighty one case eighty but but eighty one but 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 that doesn't change the fact that that's law of the circuit right yeah, now. There's right, never it's never been overturned because so, the case hasn't arisen. Well, except law. I mean, I don't mean to go down a rabbit hole, right? Law of the circuit can yield to conflicting Supreme Court. If you actually have a story to tell about how the Supreme Court yeah. has up, you don't have to wait for the Supreme Court to actually reverse the law of your circuit. I think we are disagreeing on that one. Okay. Um, okay. So that's pretty interesting stuff. Anything else on the? Just the last thing. Is, I mean, front? this is you know. I think the the real the beyond our little sort of you know two inches of real estate. I think the big question Carpenter raises is: Does it portend a broader demise of the third party doctrine? Yeah, I don't think so. What do you think? Not tomorrow, but you know, <laughs> no, no, but, but which would be impressive with no case. But just as I mean, just as Jones, you know, started a sort of bit of movement toward destabilization of the third party doctrine. And Riley helps sort of, you know, increase the snowball rolling down the hill. I do think there's now momentum. And so depending upon the specific, you know, invocations and uses of the third, I don't think the third party doctrine itself is in jeopardy. But I do think that, you know, once you tear one chunk out of the facade, I think, you know, lower courts could pounce and find other, not, not oh, okay. the whole thing. I misunderstood you. I thought you were asking, is the third party doctrine going to be reversed? No, no, no. But I think, I think, I think that like, the same reasons why this, the majority in, Carpenter. Clearly. No, right? I, th I think that the majority on its surface is saying Here are it, some of the things to think about as you're looking at third party doctrine they, applications. They put down forward. a marker, yep. the, the, the at least seven days worth right. of historical cell site location records right. and things beyond that in that category. And of that ilk. And, and so you're going to have, and so the interesting question is, well, what right. else is like that? Yep. And, and I think it's extremely clear that what is not like that is the historical analog world, paper world uh, records. Right, one-off call records. The court, the majority literally says, you know, we're not disturbing Smith yep. v. Maryland or yep. U.S. v. Miller. Yep. Um, so it's, we're only talking about other things that are of a like kind. That's right. And we'll, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, but I completely agree that this isn't the only fact pattern where this right. could be the outcome. One last note before we go on. Um, 
I don't know what to make of Justice Gorsuch's, quote, dissent, unquote, right? I mean, and so Gorsuch writes an opinion that each time I read it seems more like he's actually to the left of the majority and not to the right, where he has a very sort of property rights theory. Right. He's um, been very focused on that. Which, you know, more power to him. But so, you know, I, I don't know why it was, first of all, I don't know why it was a dissent and not a concurrence in the judgment, because it read more like a concurrence in the yeah. judgment. Second, I don't know what that portends for, you know, I mean, here's one area where Kennedy's departure won't be that big a deal, because he was in the dissent. Um, right, right. And so, exactly. you know, it, insofar as really the chief and Gorsuch are going to hold the power in surveillance and privacy cases yeah, there's going a division forward, there. It's the difference between where they are could really show up in interesting ways in the future. Absolutely. And, and Gorsuch on this dimension, to me, illustrates the point I've been making yeah. about how the range of potential Trump appointees can split on libertarian issues. I mean, so I would just say libertarian issue. Well, this is at least one. Right. It's and, not, and it's not nothing. This is a big issue. It's not nothing. I just, you know, in the grand, in, in the grand scheme of things, one constitutional issue on which, you know, Gorsuch is actually a libertarian is not, is not worth that much to me. Well, we'll see. We'll see where it goes from there. Right. Uh, travel man. Ugh. Trump v. Hawaii. Um, so obviously we could go on and on about all the larger What's non-national not? security aspects. I think we'll confine our discussion here to a certain extent. Um, national security deference is a big deal here. It's alive the, and well, apparently. The, the, the completely kind of a little bit out of the blue sky Korematsu fight, not to mention the – uh, I think the, I the rhetorical defensive move of saying in the majority opinion, we hereby say Korematsu, just to make it clear, Korematsu wrongly decided from the beginning. Actually, they, but they didn't actually say we overrule it, but whatever. I think that's being picky. So, I think he was no, no, as no. clear as hey, clear If you want to hear me be picky, let me talk about how the majority opinion spends 38 pages repeating Korematsu's mistakes before purporting to overrule it. Well, that's certainly the, the Sotomayor dissent. The, that's certainly, I, I, that's I certainly the it. losing position in this case. Uh, it, is the, it is the position that drew fewer votes. That doesn't necessarily mean it is <laughs> I think, the... I think these are synonyms. Um, I, I don't know. How did, how's Justice Black's majority opinion in Korematsu looking to you today? Did I say I was defending Justice Black? Don't, don't, don't try to pin Korematsu on wait, me. Wait, wait, wait. No, yeah. no, no, what I'm saying is, wait, what I'm saying is the losing position today could be the winning position tomorrow. I'm not, wait, I'm not accusing you of anything. Okay, I'm, it sounded like you're pinning Korematsu on me. I don't, no, I don't accept that. No, no, I, I'm sorry. No, yeah. no, no. I was saying that, like, you know, today's descent is tomorrow's majority. And it so happens I'm, all the time. Exactly. Um, right. Especially especially lately, despite Chief Justice Roberts' repeated pleas that he loves stare decisis, let's just overrule three cases in two weeks. Does that make him different from other justices with his uh, inconsistent adherence to stare decisis? I think it's a pretty common thing. I but I also think we're getting pretty far off track here. I think it's here. a little more hypocritical than, than other things, but whatever. All right, so the national security deference. I mean, I think what this case will be most important for in our universe is a real return to what I think some of us, I mean, Ganesh Sitaraman and Ingrid Wirth had written this Harvard Law Review article a couple of years ago called The Normalization of Foreign Affairs uh, Normalization of foreign affairs law, right? Something like that. Right, where they basically this is argue, no longer an exceptional mode. Right, that the Supreme Court, you know, had stopped applying the sort of sweeping, unquestioning deference when it came to foreign affairs and immigration cases. And, you know, I read the majority opinion and I see 1950s era, oh, the executive branch says it's national security, this is immigration. You know, yeah, there were some unfortunate tweets and there were some, you know, awkward statements, but eh, this is, you know, we'll hold our nose and this is fine. So let's disaggregate some of those issues. So one issue is almost a, a, a scope of the evidence kind of question about 
in the course of conducting review, actually, let's back up. There's a question of what's the degree of review? Is this rational basis? The majority talks about rational basis. So they say, we'll, we'll assume, they, she, the she says, we assume without deciding that rational basis applies. Of course, you know, is he suggesting that it might not even require rational basis review? I well, mean, that's the only on. way that makes sense, right? Because yeah. it, because it can't run the other way because right. you, you have to hold it. Right. You have to hold it if it's going the other I, direction. I agree with you. But he also, on the other hand, so he gives with that method and he takes away with that method. He also says, we assume without deciding that we can account to some extent, for the, this extraneous commentary that's not the order itself, but nonetheless, it's stuff the president said. Right. Can I just say, I mean, yeah. I, I, realize, I, I realize that today, perhaps more than any episode in our history, I'm going to say things that are going to piss you off. So I just apologize <laughs> for this. Not, um, not three weeks after the Chief Justice joined a majority opinion by Justice Kennedy that said animus by one member of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, despite the fact that there were other layers of review, and one member having animus was enough to get rid of a neutral, a neutral state law that banned discrimination in place of public accommodations. Now, all of a sudden, the fact that there's animus from one guy, and oh, he just happens to be the president of the United States who signed the executive order, is no, never mind. So let's let's dig into that, because that's that gets kind of into the weeds of- By the way, I don't know what our Twitter followers are saying when they say that I you know I, I fly off the handle sometimes. I, I don't even know what <laughs> oh, there was from. There was some pretty funny commentary. I was. I I was enjoying myself liking some of those. I um, saw that. Something about uh, suggesting that I have more temperate opinions. <laughs> yes. My opinions are not tempered. Ah, that's awesome. You know what's part of what makes the show fun? I guess. I, I guess. And, and it's including the times when you were often, you know, there are definitely times when you're more tempered than I. Yeah. Like when we talk about the Spurs. That's true. Yeah. Uh, okay. So Bye, Kawhi. Okay, let's dig into this. So what do, what do you understand the majority to have? Oh. Why? I just, sorry, that took a second. <laughs> that, that missile came around the side and hit me in the side of the head. Um, what do you understood the majority to have done? They said, we will, we're not saying we're not looking at that material, the, the campaign and, and extreme tweets and all the rest. Right, but there but was that, enough it, of a neutral, plausible national yeah, security right. justification. It seemed to be saying that, like, yeah, he has said these things, but the thing is that they articulated the traditional statements that weren't revealing of animus in the order itself and that that was enough. And is that any different from just not considering? I mean, is that the same thing as saying, they said they considered the other statements, but did it they sure, just really it disregard sure them? It feels like lip service, right? I mean, because, you know, if you really mean that you're applying rational basis review and not Romer versus Evans like rational basis yeah. with bite, then the statements are irrelevant, right? Because rational basis review asks only whether there could have been yes. Irrational Which is the way it kind of reads, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. Like, is, isn't this – I know you don't like it, but isn't that – if it's true rational basis review, isn't yeah. this the right outcome? You look and you say like, yeah, no, looks like there's a ton of animus, but we don't look at yes, that because yes. – No, they, no, wait, wait. You know. I, let me, let me, let me okay. say this just as clearly as I can. If it really is pure, old-fashioned, minimum rationality – Yeah, then by definition, review, it, this has to probably Then by definition, okay. this has to follow, right? I mean, the policy – makes no sense as a national security policy, as I think we've talked about before. Right. Right? The idea that it could, and they seem to have gone through the motions. Well, and rational basis review does not invalidate policies that are massively overbroad or under-inclusive. Exactly. Right? The problem is, is that I think there were compelling reasons for the court to apply more than minimum rationality right. in this that's case. That's where I want to get. I think yeah. that's the interesting thing here. And like the really essential aspect of the holding is that it did not choose – no, never mind rational basis with Biden. It didn't right. choose at least intermediate. And so scrutiny. why? So why are you talking about the president's statements if you really are applying 
You know, w- once right. you start talking about the president's statements, you're signaling to me that you're at, that you're doing something really dangerous, which is you're saying we actually are considering. Yeah, you're muddying rational basis review. Right, we actually are considering these external indicia of animus, and we don't think they're enough, and we don't think they're enough. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's... worse than just saying. In, imagine if the chief had written an opinion that said this is a pure rational basis case, and in pure rational basis case, we've been consistent since Caroline Products yeah. eighty years ago. Yeah, that all we look at is whether there was a rational rational basis for the for the for the so for why the do you, what do you think he was thinking in terms of he felt like he had to opinion writing strategy he, he felt he, like he would be to. too brazen to just say like we're not going to and it may it. have been i mean given kennedy's concurrence it might have been necessary to keep kennedy in the majority i bet so interesting right. um and that goes to your point earlier that kennedy is not going to be thrown off by the fact that this creates doctrinal right. muddiness be best hey, he could kill us right um, he doesn't give a shit about okay, the rational speaking basis of test. be best talk to me about the concurrence what what did tell tell the listeners for who haven't read it? What did Kennedy write separately for? Since he did join the majority right. opinion, Kennedy writes an opinion that says, um, "Dear world, right? Yeah, I know you're anxious." He literally says, "Anxious, yes. right? I know you're anxious." Fair. Um, and you know, it's certainly true that you know we're in interesting times right now, and it you know. There are limits on what we as a court can do, but that doesn't mean that the rest of our government doesn't owe fidelity yeah. to the Constitution and norms and traditions yeah. and all that other stuff. So I, I'm a little bit with you on this. Like, maybe that wasn't helpful. No! I'm not sure it's harmful the way I think you might feel it is, but it just it seemed a little indulgent. But then again, he was about to retire, so well, maybe he felt like he could indulge himself. But, but is, so- Was that his, like... His uh, his goodbye message, his swan song. Yeah, I'm out. Like, there's nothing I can do. And here's so so here's my problem. It is not only indulgent; it is utterly hypocritical. Because 15 minutes earlier, he wrote a concurrence in Nifla versus Becerra, ah. this California uh, this case about a California law that required even faith based um, health centers to provide advice to pregnant women about abortions. Right? Um, and listen, I don't. Uh, Abortion is a messy. Con- I'm, I'm not, but yeah. he wrote this two-page concurrence in that case, talking about how offensive it was that California, you know, the slide toward authoritarianism. He said begins with governments, you know, telling us what we can and can't say. The courts have an obligation then to step in, and it's like, do you not see? In these two two-page concurring opinions, both of which are about the First Amendment, a little bit of a difference between saying, oh, we, the Supreme Court, must stop the authoritarian state of California, but we will trust President Trump to rein himself yeah. in when it comes to so abiding did, by the Constitution. So why didn't he dissent in this one? He's certainly one who in the past has been yeah. perfectly happy to blow past rational basis yeah. review. Doesn't clearly, I think you and I would both agree, he doesn't care a lot about the framework's review. He cares about sort of the gut feeling of the importance of the rights at issue. Do you, do you think he actually just doesn't think that there's a sufficiently uh, constitutionally protected rights holder in the think, mix here, and therefore yeah. he's really stuck with rational basis review? I think that, I mean... He's not stuck with anything because he's Kennedy. He's Kennedy, right? That's right? what I'm saying. Like, why? Why doesn't he? If he's so worried about this, why didn't he jump in? I just think he, you know, this, or this case, issue didn't get to him the way the other that, ones. It do. doesn't get his dander up because no one's in detention, right? I mean, these weren't the airport cases, right? The, mm-hmm. It doesn't, you know, Boumediene is about people who are being held in incommunicado military detention, right? I mean, the gay marriage cases are about denying people the right to marry each other. When it comes to the right of non-citizens who don't already have, you know, who aren't already here to come to the United States, I just think that. that although, although Boumediene. Kind of suggests that the detention, I guess, factor Boumedi- is Listen, the difference. I, I've there. written about this a lot. Boumediene reads 
for most of it until he chickens out, yeah. right? But Median reads like a separation of powers case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where Kennedy yeah. could have cared less about the detainees and what all he wants and to And he sure does, he normalizes Guantanamo, he assimilates it to the United States, says it's in the constant jurisdiction, he, right. and he does might as well be Florida. And he does that not because he's sympathetic to the detainees, he does that because he doesn't like Congress trying to cut the courts out yeah, of the yeah. loop altogether. That's not this case. And that's case. not this case, yeah. yeah. All right, so... so um, but but man, I mean, I, I so can I say one thing? Can I do the oh, Korematsu thing? Yeah, yeah, we, I was going to say, we've got to talk about this. So... There's an exchange between Sotomayor and Roberts, and it's a it's a bad blood exchange. So the million dollar question I have. So at the very end of his opinion on page thirty eight, Roberts basically overrules Korematsu. And what I want to know is, was he always going to do that, or did he add that passage to respond? Oh, I to think it's, I think dissent? it's explicitly a response. Well, no, the rest of the the previous paragraphs about right. Korematsu are. But it's interesting if he was provoked into overruling Korematsu by a dissent. I th- right? I think that it, it reads to me like. You can imagine the exchange of drafts. He sees Sotomayor's dissent is going to basically – it says – Sotomayor's dissent says this is just as bad as Korematsu. It's of a like kind even though it's a different type of government power and it's repeating that error. And I think obviously if you're Roberts, that is really going to be upsetting. That's going to stand. And he's going to to respond to that. And so he adds in – But it's so transparent. Well, well, but – Transparent, but that doesn't make it right or wrong. Okay, so, kind of, so, so, so yeah. listen, folks may not know Korematsu backwards and forwards. So let me take 30 seconds just to – so Korematsu was the last of a series of four Supreme Court decisions in 1943 and 1944 involving first the curfew and mm-hmm. then the exclusion and internment of Japanese nationals and Japanese Americans living on the West Coast. Um the Supreme Court never formally upheld the internment camps. It's actually a big, a big sort of misconception mm-hmm. about Korematsu. All it did in Korematsu was that it sustained a criminal conviction of a Japanese American man, Fred Korematsu, who had violated a 1942 Act of Congress that made it a crime to refuse to comply with an exclusion order. Um, but everyone understood that Korematsu was, in effect, validating the internment policy because it was ba- it rejected um, Korematsu's claim that the ex- in, that the exclusion internment camps were um, unconstitutional on the ground that they were racial and or national origin discrimination. And the really uh, to me the really you know biting awful thing about it is the court actually says hey this is this is an express use of race so strict scrutiny in fact some people like to say you sometimes will see the reference saying hey the first case to really say strict scrutiny applies to race is Korematsu and then it says but here it survives even that level of scrutiny but but the reason why is really important and so Korematsu is controversial not just because of what it held but because of this next step the reason why Justice Black's majority opinion for a 6-3 court holds that the policy survives strict scrutiny is relying upon representations made by the Justice Department to the court that this was the narrowest, least restrictive means available, right, to effectuate the policy. That basically, to to cut to the chase, that there was no meaningful way for the government to individually screen those Japanese nationals and Japanese Americans who they had any reason to suspect of spying, espionage, sabotage, etc. And therefore, they had to take people on an entire race, American citizens, on the basis of ancestry right. and subject them to concentration and camps. And here's the problem. The Justice Department lied to the Supreme Court. So um, it's ba- even if you, Justice Jackson in his dissent, right, and Justice Murphy in his dissent said that's not good enough 
even on its face. Right. But it turns out it wasn't. It, 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 was, wasn't, it wasn't even what the informed uh, opinion within the military actually was. Right. There were there were distortions and manipulations yes. of the record. The, the the government the government knew by late 1943 that it was in a position to individually screen, and it misrepresented yeah. the Supreme Court that yeah. it wasn't. Would, wouldn't you? I'm sure you agree with this, but I, let's see if we both agree. Obviously, like. That's utterly indefensible. But I actually think that even if you didn't have that lie element, yep. it was still the wrong decision. Oh, no, and that and that's what everyone was wrong, is my point. Right. right. Like the, the court was wrong even before they even even without the fact that they right. were lied to. Right. Um, DOJ was wrong for lying to them, right? I mean Neil Kotchell, when he was acting solicitor general, formally apologized for the SG's role in that. Now, why do I say all of this? Leaving aside the misrepresentation, right? Because that might have been Korematsu specific. The central sin of the majority opinion in Korematsu was just taking the government's word for it, right? Was not scrutinizing with any meaningful care the government's assertion that military necessity justified the internment policy. This is what Jackson says in his dissent. Can I... I'm curious whether you, I, I would have formulated as the the central sin was deciding that this has to be carried out on a group wide basis without any individualized because of the because we take the government's necessity argument at face value right so those two things are they're distinct issues but they're intertwined and go together okay, I think okay. that's a friendly yeah argument. yeah um, you could read and I will just say I read right the rest of Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion in the travel ban case even if you even if you think rational basis is the right standard right as committing the same sin right as taking the government's national security justifications at such superficial face value when there are some pretty big holes in them and there are some pretty powerful reasons to think that they were pretextual and were simply post hoc rationalizations to cover up a policy that could not be defended based on its original purpose to bring Kormat, you know, Kormatsu being brought into it is exactly akin to bringing Plessy, bringing Dred Scott. They're all part of the anti-canon. These are, these are the sharpest knives you can throw, yeah. right, in, in characterizing what someone's doing today and saying yeah. this is the same as one of those. Um, it's a little bit in, under the heading of, like, accusing someone of being a Nazi, although in 2018 it's, that's become more complicated. But we used to say, hey, don't, don't accuse people of being Nazis. That, that turns the temperature up too much. Yeah. Did Sotomayor turn the temperature up too much by making the point you just made, not in a more sort of neutral, uh, emotionally neutral way, but by saying and directly accusing the majority of having done something literally every bit as bad as Korematsu. So listen, I think— That's pretty extreme. Okay. Ex- well, by that logic, Justice Scalia's dissent in Casey, where he talks about the Troika making the same mistake Chief Justice Tawney made in Dred Scott, I think ought to be judged on that same yardstick. Maybe. I I, I wouldn't disagree that okay. these things should not be thrown around, but that's not what I asked. So I think, I, I think Supreme Court justices should be very selective in hauling out the anti-canon. Right. And, and I think I think, for example, far too often Lochner is deployed right, yeah. in dissents. And it happened, yeah. I think, again today um, in the in the public sector union case. Yeah, um, that's so, too bad. You know, I do think that that it should be selective. I got to say, Bobby, in this case, I mean, the shoe fits. Right. Because you the, so? the, if you listen, if you agree with the merits of Sotomayor's dissent, which is that the national security justifications look awfully pretextual and there's compelling record and extra record evidence to think that there was a nefarious reason behind this yeah. policy. And you nevertheless uphold the policy because it's not, you know, it's not our job to look behind the superficial justifications proffered by the government. That's exactly what was wrong with Korematsu. So I don't know why it's so, so wrong here, for here, Sotomayor to sort of say Here's that. why I think this. Um, you've just made a very strong argument about the the on all foursness of the abstract questions about looking beyond looking past the representations 
that's a somewhat dry legalistic issue, and it's it's related to what happened in Korematsu, but it's very it's very separate ultimately from the underlying evil of taking in a huge group of American citizens and putting them in concentration camps. And I think most people, when they see a justice and it's reported that a justice said, this opinion is as bad as Korematsu, what's going on here is just like Korematsu, they're going to equate that kind of core yeah. issue that excluding people from at the at the border, yeah. non-citizens at the border, yeah. is akin to putting Americans in concentration camps. And that's why I have trouble with what she did. Because so, I think right. I think it she may not have meant it that way, although I think it's obvious it would be taken that way. And to me it becomes like call, calling somebody a Nazi. But so here's the thing, right? If the Supreme Court, if the majority of the court had said because all the relevant players in these cases don't have constitutional protections, right? That's why this, right? Then I th- I'd be more sympathetic with you, right? I'd be, I'd be more inclined to that position. But the court doesn't actually decide this case on the ground that they're not protected by the First Amendment. The do, court- Do they, do they, uh, I, I don't know this, so or I don't recall this. Do, do they say one way or the other? Or they just kind of like ignore they, that they issue. They assume without, they, they don't, they don't yeah. even say they're assuming without deciding. They just, yeah. they, they, they reach and reject the First Amendment challenge yeah. without getting into the messy question of whether the First Amendment even protects everybody. I, I say that because I think the, the critique Right? And the chief actually says this too in his response to Sotomayor's dissent. Would sit better with me if the court actually made that distinction. Yeah. And of course, if they did, that might help explain why they're sticking with rational basis of course. review. Listen, and and listen. without that, Step- why so, are they doing so that? So stepping back from the Korematsu yeah. fireworks, because I actually I, I have much less – I mean, you know – I don't mind acerbic dissents. I mean, right? It's, <laughs> right. it's, it's sort of your job, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I mind I mind hypocrisy, right? And so, for example, Alito this morning complaining that Justice Kagan, right, was calling them out for being, you know, black robes thwarting the legislature. Well, that's what the conservatives do every time they're in the dissent. Well, that's what, yeah, they, look, right? there's, so, there's lots so, of that. So I, I don't mind, like, bite. I mind hypocrisy, yeah. right? And, you know, I think there's at least a plausible argument, whether or not you agree with me, that there that, that the majority opinion, even in purporting to overrule Korematsu, right, applies the same kind of blind deference um, in a context where the court ought to have known better and indeed nods in several places to the fact that it does know better, right, to uphold a policy. Again, I'm with you 100%. With not quite the same connotations. Yeah, I, I would say dramatic is... is- is, and I'm, let me be clear, because maybe right. not everyone's listened to the early days of the show. Yeah. I'm no fan of the travel no, no, ban, no, 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 and, no. I, and I do think there's all protection. No one would ever that. confuse you for one. But right, but if it's really rational basis review, yep. if it's really rational basis review, then that's the way it's so supposed I would to have work. Written, and so it's not analogous. The chief to have, so the chief should have written a shorter opinion. Yeah, yeah right. I mean, yeah. so so here's so the Kennedy thing. kind of maybe pulled him into some trouble. I think that's right. Right, <laughs> a 15-page opinion that says this is not a hard case. Right, because you know. Because of the unique nature of this case, you know, people outside the country trying to come in, right? right? We apply pure minimum rationality, right? We're not going to revisit that, right? And under that standard, all we look at is the four corners of the thing. It's plausible. We're done. Yeah, that would have been cleaner. Right. By going where he went, by saying, we hear the, we we read the tweets, we read Trump's tweets, right? Right. By saying, we're aware of this. And we're still going to, like, we're willing to consider that and then we still come to this. That's where I think it gets into trouble. I think we found our point of agreement. Woohoo! High five. High five. All right. All right. Um, Light, lightning round for everything wait, wait, else. Really quickly, yeah. right? Why this matters, how this matters going forward, okay? So I don't actually think the travel ban case um, is going to make a big difference in like stuff inside the country, right? Like the family separation litigation going on right now where a district court yeah. issued an injunction last night, right? Um, because the court was quite clear. This is about the unique power the president had yeah, yeah. to control entry, yeah. not Powers over undocumented immigrants yeah. in the On country. top of that, statutory further reinforcements of deference and right. all the rest. In contrast, the Supreme Court has been clear going all the way back to 1896, 
right? That if you're in the country, no matter your immigration yeah. status, you have at least a modicum of constitutional protection. You're a person. The Fifth Amendment refers to persons. Right. This, dear, isn't, this isn't tricky. Dear President Trump, right? You can't get rid of due yeah. process. No. He, he, okay. He doesn't care. All right. Um, <laughs> so, so I think this is going to only ma- – directly it's only going to matter with regard to other suspensions of entry. Indirectly, the question is, are we back to the good old days of national security deference from the court? I think that this – in today's world – One train only? Well, I think that it all depends on the idiosyncrasies of particular cases and the lineups of the justices and the next, and judges. And Kennedy's successor. Yeah, well, they'll be part of it. So, all right. In most of these cases, and mostly where this has bite, by the way, the district judges yep. and the circuit judges. Remember Dalmazi? Yeah, what was that one? Some guy representing some. Oh, Jesus. Case. All right, so, so this yeah. happened Friday, right? So I'm on the CNN call, and they come on, like, um, the next case is Ortiz? Right, and no one was. Right. And, and the second I heard that, I was like, "You knew you were in trouble." Oh no! Now, did all your colleagues on this call? Everybody, they yeah. know you've got a yeah, stake yeah. in this case. Yeah, well, but they didn't. They didn't know that Ortiz was part of Dalmazi, right? And so when they hear Ortiz, oh, yeah. they're like, "Wait, what? We have a list of the cases that are left. Ortiz is not on the list. What is going on here?" Um, the second I heard Ortiz, my heart sank because I knew what was going to happen. So, Bobby, it turns out oral arguments actually sometimes are quite useful predictors of how things are going to go. So we got 71 pages, um, 65 of which were about the constitutional appellate jurisdiction question. Did they overturn Marbury versus no. Madison? No, although oh. two justices, you know, well, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and six were about the merits. Six, six, yeah. six pages. Why did they grant cert? The constitutional question was not in the case until the merits brief was in. What they granted cert to spend six pages? Does this help explain why it dragged on so long? Because like the level of interest and what they're interested in upon closer inspection, you know, is this a case that you know almost, almost could have been digged but wasn't? And no, I, I so I have a different theory, which may be slightly uncharitable. But my theory <laughs> is that um, there's only so much energy they had for the case, yeah, and they devoted most of it to the jurisdictional question. And then, and then eventually they're just like, oh, I'm done. Right. Whereas I think if they had devoted all the energy to the merits, they would have seen that it's not nearly as straightforward as the six-page majority opinion might lead you to believe. Was there anything, were there any little nuggets of goodness for you, any particular sub-arguments you made that did show up in the analysis? No. <laughs> I mean, so, so to make the long story short, um, there are basically two merits holdings, right? The first is that Congress, in fact, did authorize military officers to sit on the CMCR because it authorized their assignment to the CMCR. Never mind the t- 13 rounds we went on how an assignment and an appointment are materially different. Yeah. Um, and then there's no appointments clause problem because you can't point us to a prior case where we said there was an appointments clause problem, Right. Pretty superficial. Folks might think those are the right answers, yeah. but given the depths of what we argued, it was a pretty um, cryptic result. Do you feel like you didn't really have their full attention? I felt like I didn't really have their full attention. Um, yeah. Now, the one interesting thing, I'm happy to talk about this more, although I'm sure people don't want to hear it. Um, the one interesting thing that they didn't address was the Commander-in-Chief Clause question. And the reason why that's interesting is because there's nothing in Justice Kagan's opinion that forecloses the argument that even if these military officers can serve simultaneously on the courts of criminal appeals and the court martial system and the CMCR for the military commissions, having them on the CMCR where, there might, where they are arguably protected by good cause removal interferes with the president's power to reassign and redeploy them. Um, it, that argument's now wide open for the 9-11 defendants to make in their pending mandamus petition in the D.C. Circuit. So the irony is... This isn't over. Nope, nope. We'll certainly have uh, a lot of military commission issues in the days ahead. I don't doubt it. Oh, uh, hello. (laughs) It's a safe bet. We'll have other issues. How long have we gone already here, Uh, Steve? One hour and ten minutes. I think we need to 
bracket everything else and kick it over. To, all right, so we'll uh, save our, our we'll save our our Abu Qatala sentencing, our Mudarov, yeah. our all that stuff. Um, burn pit, Jags at the border. Not and, a, look. Spoiler alert. Not a posse comitatus violation. <laughs> uh, how about this NDAA cyber provisions? Sp- what about the Space Force? Space Force! I can't wait to talk about Space Force. It's we- the Space Force! What song is that? That's we should- the Space Balls. We- we- <laughs> 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 All right, so we're going to have a ton to talk about next week. And so that's assuming about- nothing new happens. So let's- is- how's-, how's that going to hold up? Time for the for the spoiler warning. We are now going to close with our frivolity. You know, it would be great if we could talk about the season finale of Westworld, but someone has yeah. fallen down on the job. <laughs> I may just your hand if you fall down on the job. My hand's up. Okay. My hand's up. Okay. Uh, you finally saw it. I, I love it. Uh, oh, we took we took baby Sydney at eight days old yeah, to this the is, Alma draft was house. This the draft house doing it's like all. bring your babies there's, during the day. There's totally a baby movie. That's and awesome. And what they do is they turn the volume down. They keep the lights up a little bit. Um, it's fantastic. Karen and I actually ended up having the theater all to ourselves yesterday <laughs> with Sydney. Um, so it was love. It was a lovely way to watch a movie with me. Good job, video. Alamo Drafthouse. S- All right, S- so Sydney got off to a good start. So Solo, a Star Wars story. Do you like it or not no. like it? You, okay, why not? So the contrast here to me is Rogue One, right? That's a, yeah. It's a tough thing to live up Rogue to. Rogue One was, was a great. compelling, like top to bottom war movie with lots of interesting twists. You know, it threw lots of candy right to mm-hmm. the fans to set up Episode Four. Um, but the candy was not the whole point of the movie, right? The the movie actually had messages and themes and plots separate oh, yeah. from the candy. Yeah. Solo was all about the candy, right? Solo was, you know, hey, ha- have you seen the magic dice? Have you seen them lately? Right, right. right. Let me keep showing them to you. Right. Can I show them to you? Let's spend three scenes figuring out how to how to explain how he wins the ship from Lando, right? Let's spend four scenes setting up how it really is possible to do the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs. So it really was just sort of down. fan wish fulfillment rather yes. than plot? Rather than plot. It was, it was like yeah. it was like plot driven by fan wish fulfillment, whereas Rogue One felt like a, a, a plot where the fan fulfillment was sort of added in as, as a bonus. That, that's fair. And you really, actually, in Rogue One, you really only get that, yeah, like the whole plot is about explaining one loose thread, but you only really get sort of the fan fulfillment in the very awesome final scenes right. of Rogue One right. when they actually connect up with Darth and the stormtroopers uh, yep. boarding the yep. consular vessel. Well, you got. Co- I mean, there are a few more. I mean, like Grand Moff Tarkin, the construction of the Death Star. You yeah. know, the, although, although the those test. didn't feel. It was neat to see him yeah. in and all that, but. Okay, so where whereas, whereas, whereas solo every five minutes there's some other explanation of some other like yeah, you know yeah, Han meeting Chewie the Millennium right? Falcon which Han, is, how does it get all beat up why right, doesn't it have a middle right. piece Han Han telling Lando that you know it's you know never invest in a mining colony I mean like yeah you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, I yeah. Mean, come on yeah, like, yeah. every other scene is something like just candy it's a little obvious I'll, I'll give you all that so but how far down does it sink for you how far down the reverse hierarchy of the Star Wars films sixth okay who it's, it is behind the original three, of course. Rogue One, of course, and Last Jedi. Yeah, uh, is it ahead of the uh, the George Lucas prequels? Yeah. All of them, even uh, maybe even, not Episode Three. Episode so, Three so, is okay. So it's somewhere. It's somewhere between. It, it may be tied for six with Episode Three in my in my rank order. So yeah, I guess I couldn't disagree with that. I think the wish fulfillment stuff is a negative, but not as negative overall. Like, I agreed that that's what was going on, but it didn't bother me so much. Yeah. Um, you know, when when Chewie meets Han, what did you think of this? I, I, I thought that, you know, they did the classic, and I, to, this always reminds me of the movie Love Actually, when, uh, when you know, uh, when he's proposing to Aurelia and he's trying to speak Portuguese, right, right. and he's saying cute things on accident. In, 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 poor, in poor translated. For, exactly. Right. So Han, Han has his... Uh, Can me- someone explain how Han learned Wookiee? 
Yeah, that that was a real wide open loose like, thread. Like as a, as a random street thug, kid street on, thug on Corellia, he yeah. learned Wookie. Yeah, I did kind of like. Did you like seeing you know the shipyards a little bit? Yeah, that's kind of neat. Yeah. Um, Listen, the visuals were great. Yeah. Right? I mean, I thought the visuals were great. I thought the you know obviously it's a Star Wars movie. The production values are great. The the the, the Star Destroyer in the cloud. Yeah, that was great. That I, was I wish I wish I hadn't seen that in the previews because yeah. it was a really great moment. Yeah. Um. Well, let me ask you this because this is something you kind of heard some people talking about with the most recent regular Star Wars movie. We're starting to see more and more name actors recognizable right you, you woody to me, harrelson it, woody harrelson i thought andy newton i who thought you, who you know more about if you watch more westworld yeah i was gonna say that it doesn't really mean much um, to me uh, uh, look, on wood on woody harrelson i thought he was actually pretty good but i never lost sight of the fact that i was looking at woody harrelson yep. and to me it's not part and parcel of that yeah, yeah. movie's experience where you no, want to no. star wars makes actors it doesn't reward them yeah I, I didn't i didn't love that but that said i was prepared to really dislike him being in that role yeah. it was pretty good i mean the problem is my favorite character in the whole movie was l3 Okay, now I have a question about this. You, you saw my accidental release of my show notes. And, I didn't actually read them all the way through. Okay, well, there's a bit at the end where I say I'm really conflicted on this because it's basically it the... Feels it's, very Me Too? No, it was... No, 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 not that at all. I, I No, it's that that character, the sassy, fun, lovable, super smart-ass robot, it's the same damn robot but just a different uh, gender program than in Rogue One. Yeah. I mean, literally, was the... It, I wonder, it's like, yeah, no, it's supposed to be the same robot. They're all like that because it was such a repeat. Westworld crossover, eventually all the droids become self-aware and learn to. <laughs> well, so, I mean, seriously, do you, do you think that was just like a cheap, like, hey, that worked really well in Rogue One. Maybe. Let's do it again. Yeah. I, mean, listen, I thought a lot of it was cheap. But um, speaking of Woody House, also, I'd say the same thing about Paul Bettany, right? I mean, as the as the uber villain guy. Yeah, yeah, that was that was also kind of hard. And I gotta to... say, I mean, I love Donald Glover's. Like, I love the idea of casting Donald Glover as Lando. I thought he channeled Billy D pretty good. He channeled Billy D very well, but it was almost too much of a caricature. Yeah, it was, he he was doing you know he kisses the hand the same way, kind of has all the same lines and mannerisms. You want it to be similar, but it would have been you know an actor of that range could have maybe done something and more personal. And with there's it. no sort of compelling explanation for why he would risk everything for that stupid mission. Right, like, yeah. like, like everyone else had. There were clear, like, there were clear reasons why everyone else had to do the thing. Right, right. I don't want to give too much away. Yeah, yeah. Um, Lando's only there because plot. Because plot. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I, okay, what I about Darth totally Maul at the end? Darth again, right? Just candy, pointless candy. Well, I actually thought that that I thought that was a huge negative. When I saw that, I was yeah. like, wait, no, wait, what? Why are you trying? Now maybe we don't know where they're, they're going. Setting with- up, right? They're setting up the next. Solo is so like Darth Maul's gonna play a huge role in this, where we know he's not gonna be killed uh, because right. he has to die he, later. Right. He can't get killed until um, until Obi Wan kills him. So is this a continuity problem? Because no. I was trying to tote up the days, right? So no, no, it's not necessarily a continuity problem. Depending upon right, you know, well, how old is Han when he's at the cantina? I mean, assume, assume like assume like I don't know, fifteen years elapses. Right, maybe that's enough. Which which would be fine, except for all of the times in Solo where they talk about how he's got to go to Tatooine. I know, I'm like, what's he going to do for Jabba? That's going to take 15 years before the chickens come home to roost. Seriously, uh, did you catch the reference? And they're talking about like, you know, you involved this person. Why didn't you? And, and uh, someone says, why didn't you get Bosk? Yeah, who's one of the yeah. you know the the famous bounty hunter scene yeah. on the Death Star yeah. and Empire. That was no, nice. No, it's all candy. Yep, it's it all is. candy and very little movie. Whereas Rogue One actually had a had a theme and a plot. So I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more for what it was. Um, I thought the guy they cast as Young Han did a, as decent a job as you That's could. That's trying, okay. Yeah, That's trying to have the connotations. It's an impossible job. I mean, he, I, you know, yeah. he was he was not my problem with the movie. Yeah, uh, Chewie was pretty good. <laughs> the whole bit when he reveals how old he is, he's like, "How do you know how to fly? You're 160 years old." 
Not bad. All right, we've gone on too long. Yeah, and yet I have so much more to say. I know. Well, we're going to get a lot of opportunities next week to cover ground we didn't cover this week. Uh, sorry for the Scotus Palooza. We really went deep, but I think it, those cases were worthy of it. It's kind of like the Supreme Court matters. It's kind of like, you know, Donald Trump won the presidential election because there were enough people willing to hold their nose because they wanted him to fill the next one or two Supreme Court seats. There's no question that those who supported Trump, despite the obvious tensions with other things that, you know, this isn't true for everybody, but for some people it was tension there with other commitments. Uh, Those who wanted the appointments and saw the uh, Article 3 appointments as the main thing are definitely getting their money's worth and then some. And uh, the rest of us are getting something. So I'll I'll just just close with a a statistic that I like to tell my students. Um, Actually, let me, me, I don't know if you've seen my my Twitter today, so maybe I'll pose it as a question Mm. to you. Yeah, I know. What was the last day on which, and, and I'll just make it even what was the last year, in which a majority of the justices of the Supreme Court had been appointed by Democratic presidents. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to... I'm sure you're going to ask about by Federalist presidents. Yeah. Uh, by Democratic presidents. So I, actually, uh, I have... So like let me... Let me you, you think, you think for 1971? 69. May 14th. The day Abe Fortas resigned. Yeah. May 14th, 1969 was the last day on which a majority of the court had been appointed by Democratic presidents. Now, you raise an interesting question, which is last time you had, you know, such a dominant conservative majority... I think 1937, right? I think right before the four horsemen, right, started retiring, um, was the last time you had a court that was so heavily and oh, and right before Owen Roberts switches his vote in West Coast Hotel. So, so if you go forward from there, obviously Eisenhower didn't, you know, reset the, nope. the courts, and you know, he gave us a warrant. Right. So Eisenhower's years were not devoted. He also as, gave us Brennan. His his legal policy. Uh, as, such as it was, was not directed towards Eisenhower, stacking the Eisenhower courts. Eisenhower would be a liberal Democrat. Today. Right, right. So, th- so then you roll forward from there. Who, you know, you don't even Nixon. get a window until Nixon. He puts some people on the courts, but one of them's Blackman. It, you know, he's he's also to a greater degree by then they're thinking about appointments, but right. he doesn't Ford, really drive Ford forward. Ford puts Stevens on the court. Right. right. So f- famously, the Reagan administration, Ed Meese, and others, they really they were yep. consciously trying to be different. Um, and you have a wave of conservative appointees then, and and you get nonetheless. What conservatives would view as misfires, like yep. David Souter, yep. um, on certain issues, yep. Kennedy and Casey and O'Connor and Casey to them looks like big misfires. Yep. So, um, so it's true that the Democrats haven't had the majority in a long time, but it's also true that the Republicans haven't successfully translated their appointment opportunities into an unshakable five. Level. Just into, so, so right. right. So I would say since FDR was the last one to pull that off. Right. I would say since O'Connor um, retired. Right. There's yeah. no question there's been a conservative majority in the Supreme Court, but right? A strongly consistent conservative majority we haven't seen since FDR, right? Yeah, so I'd say that, yeah, so Trump is, incredibly enough, Trump's in a position to do something that FDR did, which is really in place the deciding votes to lock in a particular FDR went further. I mean, by 1941, FDR was responsible for all nine No, yeah, he he had the benefit of what he was trying to overturn was a bunch of very senior people who were dropping left and right, plus the younger (laughs) ones were ready to flip. Yep. All right. So I I guess all that's just to say, buckle up. Buckle the frack up. Bobby is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, and if you just started listening to us today because you want to hear us talk about the Supreme Court, come back next week. We actually have you know useful things to say about other topics as well. It's true. Um, until then, stay safe out there. Adios.